Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us this privilege of fellowshipping with you today. Please bless us in this meeting that we would think your thoughts, that we would be guided by heaven in my speaking, in our thinking, in our interaction. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I begin this morning, I want to bring you greetings from Weimar, Center of Health and Education. Many of you have uh, been regular attendees at ASI. You know of Weimar well. But we've been around for over 30 years in Northern California. Most of you know us for our 18-day intensive lifestyle change program. We still have people coming from all over the world to focus on natural health principles and address health-related issues. But our newest program, or one of our newest programs, I've got to be careful because a lot of new things are happening at Weimar. One of our newest programs is called Health, Health Evangelism and Leadership Training for Him. And uh, actually, the director of the program was here a few moments ago, Don McIntosh. Don will be back, but he's uh, rushed off actually to bring some flyers. If you're not familiar with health, we're equipping people to be more effective health leaders at a local church level. So it's a four-month intensive program. We have people from physicians to nurses to academy graduates uh, showing up on our campus, a whole cross uh, section of people that really looks a lot like the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And these folks are going out and making a difference in communities. I was just in Lansing, Michigan, with four of our graduates who are working with campus. They're working with that ministry there, and they're doing health evangelism there across the street from Michigan State University. And I was uh, thankful to see how they're reaching people through health coaching and health seminars. This is the kind of work that we're training people to do in that uh, four-month program. Uh, Dr. Randy Bivens is a member of our team. Dr. Bivens, why don't you raise your hand? Don McIntosh will be sitting next to him. So if you're looking for uh, information about Weimar and some of our programs, uh, it'll be back uh, there toward the back of the room. Uh, something else I want to tell you about that I'm excited about here at uh, ASI is the Amen Luncheon. And I don't know how excited to be because I don't actually think I can be there, but I've been to many of the Amen meetings and Amen Luncheons. And uh, Amen is the Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. This is a, a network of physicians, dentists, and other like-minded people who are coming together looking for ways to more effectively incorporate evangelism into their practices and into their community outreach. It, how many of you who are health professionals have never heard of Amen? Is there anyone like that in this room? Okay, a number of you. Um, Rebecca, why don't you stand up? And if you're a health professional especially, Rebecca has some of the flyers about the luncheon. Now, this is a popular event, and someone was telling me it was filled. Is that true? So do you have some of the flyers if some people want those? I do. Okay, and they should come back, or do you want to pass them out if, if there's interested folks? If you're interested, raise your hand. Rebecca has uh, been a member of the uh, AMEN team for, for many years, and she'll get that, that information to you. And are we going to run out? Uh, here, I've got one here, so since you're up front, you get one. I have more under the chair. I just see if any. Okay. Well, in just a minute, we're going to move into the uh, presentation for the day, and that is the Adventist health message, a key to optimal witness and spiritual health. And I can see a number of you have been following good health practices because you're keeping your arm raised for a long time. That's good, by the way. 
Rebecca will, will get that material to you. Well, let's begin with asking a question. I like to start presentations with questions because I want you to be engaged and I want you to be thinking about what's going on. Rebecca's going to go get more of those. Rebecca, if we don't get a chance to interrupt the lecture again, I'll let you, why don't you put them back by the water there or on the back table? So they'll be on the back table. So has anyone ever asked you to perform a task that was already completed? Has anyone ever asked you to perform a task that was already completed? Well, someone may ask you to do it. And you, well, your response could be, well, hey, I, you're almost kind of proud of yourself. I already did that. You know, here's someone asking me to do something. It's already done. But you could also be insulted, couldn't you? Well, what, what, are, what are, they, are they asking me to do that? I already did it a long time ago. Or they think they needed to tell me to do that? There could be other responses, too. But there is a question in the Bible, actually an implied question, that most of us from our cultural perspective never think that it must have come across to the children of Israel like a request to perform a task that was already completed. I want you to turn your attention to a very familiar verse. It's found in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. And God there says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now, if you were traveling with the children of Israel, might you have asked this question? Wasn't God already with us? Isn't God already with us? Or you wouldn't even ask the question because if you had left Egypt with the children of Israel, you would have had this experience. It says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way. He took not away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. How many of you traveled some distance to come to ASI? Yeah, I did too. How many of you had a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire gathering, guiding you? Would you have had any question that the Lord was guiding you here if that experience was yours? I mean, that would be, I, I, mean, I, I think most of us believe the Lord brought us here. But could you imagine, I mean, how could there be any question if someone pulled you aside and said, are you really sure you're supposed to be here at ASI? Don't you think you should be at your home church? They need you more there. And you would say, you don't realize how I got here. I mean, there was this pillar of cloud that guided me all the way to the ASI convention. But here's the question. If God was visibly leading them, why would he say, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them? Have you ever thought about this? Well, if you look at a more modern translation, it seems to capture the essence of the Hebrew a little bit better. Because as the English Standard Version renders it, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, in the middle of the encampment. And so if you look at a schematic diagram, whether you like my schematic diagram or not, of the Israelite encampment, you had the 12 tribes arranged around a central focal point, which was the tabernacle. By the way, students of antiquity tell us that this was not an original design with God. If you had been living in Egypt, if you were a member of Ramesses II's 
war party, if you will, if his, part of his military, you would have seen that Ramesses II was right in the middle of the encampment with all the armies encircling him. God was using the imagery of the time. He was speaking to the people in a language they could understand. He was saying, I am going to dwell as your resident king in the very midst of you. And so as that wilderness sanctuary was viewed by the children of Israel, they realized that their king was enthroned in their midst. Can you understand a little bit more why God was the one they were rejecting when they called for an earthly king? This was still in the days of the earthly tabernacle. What I would suggest to you is the whole message is not that God is, is ruling as king in the midst of his people, but God is interested in an intimate relationship with his people. And so the sanctuary reveals not only a God who's a king, a king above all the earthly kings, because you realize that the sanctuary revealed someone who was transcendent, someone who was not tied to earthly uh, elements. So when you came to that wilderness sanctuary, what did you see? What was communicated? Well, of course, first, you could say, well, one thing that was communicated was we were seeing very clearly a representation of heavenly things. And that's very clear, both in Exodus and when Paul refers to it in the book of Hebrews. But you could say also, as we look at the sanctuary, we see there Jesus and his ministry, his relational ministry very clearly. As Jesus put it in John 12, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And so as we walked into that outer courtyard, as we saw the altar of burnt offering, as we saw the sinless victim slain, our minds today are drawn to Jesus, who John identified as the Lamb of God. And as you went in to the holy place of the sanctuary. You couldn't go in, of course, unless you were a priest. But if you were to go there, you would again see manifestations of how Jesus wanted to be physically present with his people. These were relational messages communicated in the showbread as Jesus revealed what? I am the bread of life. As you look there at the altar of burnt incense and you see the connection in the Bible with our prayers and you read about Jesus' offering. By the way, a very interesting insight in the Hebrew is the term for a burnt offering is related to the term for incense. So the incense that uh, went up with the prayers of the saints was actually an embodiment of Jesus' sacrifice. So everything about the sanctuary is teaching about this relational God, this God who gives everything. Let me just illustrate this a little bit more. In the book of Revelation, you know, it's based on the sanctuary. John is given a view of the heavenly sanctuary in Revelation 1, and throughout the book of Revelation, there's this sanctuary imagery. So in Revelation chapter 1, John describes his situation. He is on the Isle of Patmos. Why? Do you remember that in, in Revelation 1? Why does he say he's on this island? 
That's right, for the testimony of God, for the word of God. He's being persecuted. John is writing to a persecuted church. And so when he sees Jesus in the midst of the seven candlesticks, Jesus reveals the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Jesus is saying in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of problems, I am in the middle of my church. So I don't know what's happening in your life today. I don't know what challenges you have, but Jesus is trying to communicate a very practical message in the sanctuary, and that is that he is physically present with you. You may not feel him there. It may look like things are going the wrong direction, but the sanctuary speaks of a relational God that cares about his people. But then as we think about the most holy place, some people, as they look at that, they say, this doesn't seem all that relational. I mean, it seems quite austere. Only the high priest could enter once, and that was on the Day of Atonement, once a year. And regardless of how an artist depicts the Ark of the Covenant, inside that Ark, you know, were the Ten Commandments. And of course, the question is, the law of God at the heart of the sanctuary, how is that relational? How is that relational? Have you ever thought about that? Well, hopefully most of us have. Jesus summarized it in Matthew 22. He summarizes the law as really boiling down to what? Love. Love. Love to God and love to our neighbor. So we see this relational God revealing himself in the midst of his people as a transcendent king who longs for relationship, who everything about the sanctuary is, com is, is communicating this very powerful message. And so you say, well, what does all this have to do with the health message? I thought I was coming to a health seminar. If I wanted to go to a sanctuary presentation, I would have gone somewhere else. What does it all have to do? What does the sanctuary have to do with our health message? I actually think it has everything to do with it. In Leviticus 23, most of you, when you think of Leviticus and the, and the sanctuary, you think of Leviticus 16, and that's a good connection to have in your mind. But Leviticus 23 gives some more particular details about how the people were to prepare, how they were to act on the Day of Atonement. And here we read, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now on the, on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation and you shall afflict yourselves or you shall fast and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall on that day not do any work for it's a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. Now, it's interesting to me, if you open the book, Councils on Diet and Foods, I think it's around page 130, there's a whole section that deals with fasting. And in that section, a more contemporary prophet tells us that every one of us should be fasting. Now, that doesn't mean, she explains herself, she doesn't tell us that that means we should all be on a water-only fast for the rest of our lives. What she's speaking about is how we live. We should be cutting off ourselves from those things that would spiritually make us impure, if you will. In the great controversy, many of you remember this familiar statement on page 488. Those who would share the benefits of the Savior's mediation should permit nothing to interfere with their duty 
to perfect holiness in the fear of God. This is a biblical concept. It's a day of atonement concept. It's a, it's a concept that Paul incorporates into his writings, this concept of holiness. Now, I know we've got to be careful here, and I'll give you some balancing things, because some of you might be like me, and you're getting a little bit worried that the speaker is giving you an unbalanced view of a, a subject. But, but let's hang in there just for a minute. Perfect holiness in the fear of God. The precious hours, instead of being devoted to pleasure, to display, or to gain-seeking, should be devoted to an earnest, prayerful study of the word of truth. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. All need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of their great high priest. Otherwise, it will, not, it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith which is essential at this time or to occupy the position, the position which God designs them to fill. Every individual has a soul to save or to lose. Each has a case pending at the bar of God. Each must meet the great judge face to face. How important then that every mind contemplate often the solemn scene, the solemn scene when the judgment shall sit and the book shall be opened, when with Daniel every individual must stand in his lot at the end of the days. So we have this picture. The sanctuary was not something just for the children of Israel in, in antiquity, but it's something that's of vital importance for us today. It has to do not just, not just with some end-time judgment, but it also has to do with the position that God designs us to fulfill or to fill in the last days. Did you notice something interesting? And here's where we're starting to see some of the health connections, talking about fasting, talking about lifestyle, talking about holiness. And if you think about what we just read in Great Controversy, page 488, we read a lot of things that have to do with mental clarity, whether or not we realized it. Think about it. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should what? Be clearly understood. Does this uh, have any bearing on how clear our minds are? How can you clearly understand something if your mind is not clear? Well, how about this? All need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of their great high priest. Is this speaking about a mental issue, a cognitive issue, a mental performance issue? How about this? All this is taken just from that statement I just showed you. How important then that every mind do what? Contemplate the solemn scene that we just referred to. Well, it's really a biblical emphasis, this call to holiness. I mentioned it already. Just look at one example. The book of Deuteronomy. By the way, do you know what Deuteronomy means? The name Deuteronomy. What does duo refer to? Two. So du or duo is two. Nomos is the law. This is the second giving of the law, the second recitation of the law. And so the book of Deuteronomy is written with special reference to that which has gone before. Even the name of the book in English indicates that. And many examples, I mean, Deuteronomy is peppered with this unusual call. And I say it's unusual because sometimes Christians act like Adventists are the only ones who remember the word remember. The book of Deuteronomy filled with it. Look at Deuteronomy 6, and you can see some of the other references there. There's many. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you didn't build, houses full of all good things which you didn't fill, hewn out wells which you didn't dig, 
vineyards and olive trees which you didn't plant when you've eaten and are full, then beware. Beware, lest what? You forget. You forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. The danger of forgetting the call to remembrance is, is, is throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And as you read through that, you say, well, Dr. DeRose, this sounds an awful lot like Revelation 3 and the message to the Laodicean church, doesn't it? People who have everything, it seems, but have forgotten the most important thing. And so God is calling us, a relational God is calling us to understand a connection about lifestyle. In fact, many times when Ellen White spoke about the importance of the call that we have today to live as God's people, she refers to the book of Deuteronomy. Here she is quoting from Deuteronomy 7, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are on the face of the earth. The Lord didn't set upon his love upon you nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he swore with your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee to this day to do them. And then she says, please read carefully the whole of the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy and think upon the word of the Lord. This call to holiness of living is something that many, even Seventh-day Adventists, are getting, getting concerned about. Because, in fact, I'll just tell you the truth. I was just lecturing yesterday. It's hard to believe. It was. It was yesterday. At Andrews University, I was speaking for a workshop there, and um, one of the, uh, the students there, as we were speaking about the health message and why many people don't embrace that, they said, well, many people say it's not a salvation issue. It's not a salvation issue. Well, what is a salvation issue? What is a salvation issue? Um, turn in your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you, to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy. Now let's do this. Let's do, uh, let's do numbers. Let's do numbers 19. I'm turning to Numbers 19, and I want to draw your attention to something. There's a number of places in the Bible where God makes a very clear connection between lifestyle choices and holiness. And I want us to think about it, and then I'll give you some other things that balance us. And then we're going to bring a lot of modern science into this if you're getting worried. But uh, this is... Uh, in Numbers 19, there's the sacrifice of the red heifer. It's an amazing sacrifice. It's an, a blameless sacrifice that is slain outside the camp. It is uh, used for making atonement when people come in contact with things that defile them, like death. But look at verse 13 in Numbers 19. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, and does not cleanse himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. 
And that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. What the context here is God provides this red heifer sacrifice and this special water that's connected with the sacrifice for cleansing from impurity. And this is saying someone doesn't follow God's instruction doesn't cleanse themselves after contact with death. And the verdict is they're tarnishing, they're sullying, they're, they're contaminating God's sanctuary, and they will be cut off. So in this particular passage, in this particular passage, was this a salvation issue? You could say, yes, but Dr. Rose, that's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. Yes, it was a salvation issue if they didn't follow God's instruction, but today we can still do that. We, we could touch a dead person and not wash our hands, and you could even do that as a physician, go examine patients. They may get sick, you may transmit disease, but you still, you know, this, this is not a salvation issue. Well, similar counsel is given in the Bible about uh, offering your children to Moloch. You know, you're to be cut off. And you could say, is that a salvation issue? Are we saved by not worshiping idols? Is that what saves us? Of course not. We're saved by Jesus. This is what the sanctuary system reveals. But the sanctuary system reveals we're saved by a God who longs for relationship. And there is, uh, some years ago, I was teaching the, in the community college system in New England. And uh, one day I went to a an interdenominational Christian fellowship that, that met at the college where I was teaching. And uh, I was sitting there, and the faculty member that was leading out was sharing her testimony. She said, for many years I was saved. Jesus was my Savior, but he was not my Lord. And what she was saying is she had this idea of some kind of legal justification that when she was a child she said you know I, I trust Jesus and then she just did anything she wanted for many years and she said she was saved but she was Jesus was not her Lord I don't read anything about that kind of relationship in the Bible Jesus calls us to follow him he calls us to walk with him he's a relational God now some of you are starting to get depressed and we're going to talk about health principles you'll get even more depressed so let me read something that balances our thinking. It's actually one of my favorite readings from the Spirit of Prophecy. And I'm actually turning to a little book called Faith and Works. How many of you uh, have read some of or all of Faith and Works? This is a powerful little book. I find it's not on the radar screen of many people. And um, I'm trying to think of the quickest way to get to page 107 in Faith and Works. Some of you are more facile uh, with, uh, with these electronic devices than I am. Um, so I guess I've got to put an abbreviation in here. Say, Dr. DeRose, why don't you just go back to the old way of doing things? Just bring the book, Faith and Works, and then it would save you doing all this. Well, I'm on Faith and Works, page 107. Faith and Works, page 107. Actually, the context of this is Jesus' most holy place ministry. But I'm going to jump to the paragraph right after, and we'll come to the reference to the Day of Atonement uh, in a minute. I'm on paragraph four, if you're actually following along like I am, on some kind of electronic device. Faith and Works, page 107. Perfection through our own good works we can never attain. 
The soul who sees Jesus by faith repudiates his own righteousness. We're not thinking how good we are, how holy we are. We repudiate our own righteousness. And you ladies know that when uh, they wrote in, in this era, they would use the male gender. And maybe it's just as well, because it's pretty hard on us. So you can think of the men being especially singled out. He sees himself, but you ladies should say she sees herself, as incomplete. His repentance insufficient. His strongest faith but feebleness. His most costly sacrifice as meager. How are you starting to feel? I mean, we're look, basically, we're looking at ourselves and we're saying, listen, I don't have the faith I need. I don't have the holiness that God's calling me to have. I, my repentance isn't even good enough. We see our most costly sacrifice as meager, and what happens then? It says we sink in humility at the foot of the cross. But I'm glad the paragraph doesn't end there. It says, but a voice speaks to him from the oracles of God's word. In amazement, he hears the message, ye are complete in him. Jesus is our sufficiency. It's not my lifestyle. It's not what I'm doing. Now all is at rest in his soul. No longer must he strive to find some worthiness in himself, some meritorious deed by which to gain the favor of God. So yes, if you're saying the health message is not a salvation issue, yeah, it doesn't save us. Of course not. But this does not mean it's irrelevant in the Christian experience. It is central because it's all relational. And it's speaking of our walk with Jesus. Now just look at the paragraph before it, if you will. The paragraph before it, page 107 of Faith and Works, paragraph 3. And it brings us to this very perspective that we've been talking about. It says, Jesus stands in the Holy of Holies, now to appear in the presence of God for us. There he ceases not to present his people, moment by moment, complete in himself. You say, well, this is good news. What you were saying didn't sound all that good. But because, listen carefully, because we are thus represented before the Father, we're not to imagine that we are to presume upon his mercy and become careless, indifferent, and self-indulgent. Christ is not the minister of sin. We are complete in him, accepted in the beloved, only as we abide in him by faith. Jesus is showing us in the sanctuary message the happiest way to live. He's showing us how to preserve our minds so that we can remember the things he's called us to do. Let me give you an example, since some of you have been chomping at the bit to get to some of the scientific information. And my danger is sometimes I get too philosophical. But let's talk about two things. And if, if we were to take time, and some of you know this, you've seen this data, diabetes, insulin resistance, being linked to cognitive problems, uh, mental clarity is impaired when we don't have optimal metabolism as far as blood sugar, high blood pressure, another cognition-robbing disease. And so what I want you to do is not think in terms of dying from a stroke. That's connected very intimately with high blood pressure. I don't want you to get worried about having your legs chopped off or losing your vision from diabetes or having a heart attack, which is the most prevalent 
complication of diabetes. I want you to think about your brain. And now look at a slide here. This is one of the most amazing slides that has come out of the recent round of the Adventist Health Study. It's just an amazing slide. What it is, it is a cross-sectional slide. For those of you that have some scientific background, it's looking at the Adventist church at a point in time. So as I describe it, I may not use the most careful epidemiologic language, but I'm trying to make a point that I think is, is apparent from this graphic. You're looking here at the risk of diabetes and the risk of high blood pressure as it is correlated with dietary practices. So here we have brothers and sisters in the church, equally beloved by God, who are not vegetarians. They are. They are equally beloved by God. And I wasn't a vegetarian for many years. And I'm so glad that God still loved me. By the way, um, his heart may beat more in unison with some of the non-vegetarians and some of the vegans. Okay? you're getting the point of what we're talking about. But I'm wanting you to see something here. If you move from a non-vegetarian diet to a semi-vegetarian, now look at the definition. Look at how the researchers defined semi-vegetarian. They were eating red meat, poultry, and fish less than once a week. So if I meet someone, if, if you're sitting down at the table with someone here at ASI, and someone says, well, you know, what do you think of this food? And you say, well, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a vegan. And they say, what about you? They say, well, I'm essentially a vegetarian, too. Well, they're usually a semi-vegetarian, <laughs> OK? Does that help them? Does that help them? It helps them tremendously. Look at this. It drops the risk of diabetes and high blood pressure in the range of what? 30%. Go a step further. You get rid of the red meat and the, and the poultry, and you're just eating fish and dairy and eggs, you're a pesco-vegetarian. Look at this, cutting your risk in half of diabetes and high blood pressure. Now, I know some of you are bothered. I'm giving you kind of perspective language in a cross-sectional study. If that doesn't mean anything to you, um, I'm hoping those of you that understand what I'm saying, you're giving me some poetic license here. I'm trying to help us see the practical implications of what we're looking at. And I realize I'm taking a little bit of liberty with the data because what this is doing, it's not looking at the same people. In other words, it's not looking at you when you were 20 on this program, and then you changed to this, and then to this, and this, and this. It's looking actually at different people who've been on these diets uh, generally for a period of time, presumably. But we go next to the lacto-ovo vegetarians. No more fish. No more healthy food. Do you realize how many medical articles speak about the health benefits of fish? By the way, there's plenty of medical articles that speak about the dangers of fish, too. I had someone in that workshop I was just telling you about the other day who was all worried about the mercury in vaccinations. I said, don't worry about mercury in vaccinations. Worry about the mercury in fish. I mean, this is far and away the big mercury exposure that we're exposed to in our, in our population. So lacto-oval vegetarians, they're getting their risk down to about a third of what the non-vegetarians were at. And then look at this. When you come to the vegans, about 20%, about one-fifth, the likelihood of developing diabetes and high blood pressure. This, what I'm trying to help you see, this is not just some sterile health-related issue. This is speaking about your brain. 
If you want to protect your brain, if you want the clearest thinking, you do not want to have high blood pressure. You do not want to have diabetes because these things take a toll on your cognitive processes. And the word remember is not just in the heart of the Ten Commandments at the beginning of the Sabbath command. It is throughout God's counsel to us. We are in danger of forgetting. I'm in danger of forgetting. Well, what about our children? You say they don't have diabetes or high blood pressure yet. I could share with you statement after statement. If you just read the Bible, read the spirit of prophecy, we wouldn't be having these questions. We wouldn't be saying, well, health is real. You know, it's kind of peripheral. If you want to be on a healthy diet, if disease runs in your family, you know, it's not, it, don't bring it into the church. We wouldn't be saying this. You cannot arouse the moral sensibilities of your children while you are not, not careful in the selection of their food. The tables that parents usually prepare for their children are a snare to them. I mean, is this sobering or not? These are our kids. They don't have high blood pressure and diabetes. Here, she's seeing decades ago. By the way, do you know what momentous year this is? 2013, do you know what anniversary this is that we're experiencing? This is the 150th anniversary year of the comprehensive health reform vision given to Ellen White in 1863. I mean, it's perfectly appropriate that we're speaking about this topic here, even if it was the 151st anniversary or 149th, you understand. But the 150th anniversary. And how well are we doing with just heeding the council? Unfortunately, we're not doing all that well. Let's look at another example from the literature. Beverages and the Christian. Does this have any bearing on our morality, on our clarity of mind? Well, sometimes they give whole presentations on hemorrheology and mental health. And hemorrheology has to do with blood fluidity. And I don't really have a lot of time to, to talk about this. We have a very short time. So if you're very perceptive, though, you'll get one of the key messages uh, that I give in my hemorrheology classes. You've got to be very perceptive, though, to uh, catch one of my key messages. Okay, I gathered I didn't have to drink that much for you to get the message that optimal hydration is very important for blood fluidity. And blood fluidity, by actual measurement, scientific data, has a bearing on how clearly we think. The more fluid your blood, the better your cognitive performance. There's actually research looking at measures like viscosity. That's a measure of the thickness of your blood. The less viscous your blood, the freer it flows, the clearer your mental process is. So do you, do you see this? this? This is basic Christianity. You say basic Christianity is talking about prayer and the devotional life. Well, let me tell you, what kind of prayer and devotional life do you have if your health is shot? Listen, I know this as a physician. I remember some years ago in one of our Adventist lifestyle centers, I've worked in several over the years, and I walked into the room of one of my patients. She was sitting there with a Bible in her hands. And as I walked in, she said, Dr. DeRose, I'm reading my Bible, and I can understand it. Now you say, well, I can understand the Bible. But her lifestyle was so impaired that she felt she couldn't even understand the Bible. You say, well, this doesn't apply to me. I mean, I understand the Bible. But how well do I understand the Bible? How well do you understand it? How many times have you read the Bible 
And then, so I never saw that before. I'm sure I read that many times. Well, how come you didn't get it the first time? And I would suggest to you that all of us, I'm speaking to myself as well, we have degrees of cognitive impairment. And a lot of it has to do with just how we live. Well, we got to talk about caffeine because this is the new brain food. Aren't you aware of this? I mean, I am shocked. I'm literally shocked by what's coming out in the medical research literature about caffeine. I am going to show you one of the most amazing studies that's come out in the last year or so. It is absolutely amazing, shockingly amazing. But let me give you a little bit of background first, because we have to speak a little bit about caffeine. Many people are touting caffeine for its mental health benefits. I was just doing some more literature review yesterday on this topic, and it is, the, the literature really is so biased. And I, I'm telling you this, because if you don't realize that every one of us, when we do research, and I've done a little bit of clinical research, we bring our biases into our research. And it's very hard for a researcher, not impossible, but it's very hard for a researcher to draw conclusions that are contrary to his or her cherished beliefs. In fact, they often do studies looking to find their beliefs true, and if they don't find them true, they think they've done something wrong. Now, I'm not speaking disparagingly because I'm the same way. I mean, we have counsel in the spirit of prophecy and in the Bible, and if I'm doing research and I see something that doesn't seem to fit, I'm not going to believe it at first. You say, well, Dr. DeRose, you're biased. Well, the whole point is we're all biased, but we try to control for that when we're doing research. The problem is this bias continues to creep in, and the more people, and I'll, I'll tell you, this has even happened to me in public meetings. I've been in public meetings, and uh, like everyone seems to be on the same page, and they're saying amen or giving me affirmation in other ways, and I end up maybe taking some more extreme positions than I normally would, thinking that I'm speaking to everyone who's on the same page. Do you understand this? So in the research community, when everyone's high-fiving, when they're putting out the latest study about how good caffeine is for you, you start to get very worried. And I'll show you an amazing study, like I said, in just a moment. But let's talk a little bit about how caffeine works. You take in caffeine, and you're going to absorb about 99% of that caffeine. It doesn't accumulate in your tissues, but uh, of concern. For women who are pregnant and breastfeeding, that caffeine does affect the child. And uh, one of the ways that caffeine works is it blocks adenosine receptors. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the adenosine receptors. And some of you are trying to make sure I don't go too quickly. By the way, if some of you want my, um, like a PDF of my slides, uh, I would say I'd write my email address on the board. but. Um, there isn't a board. Well, remind me at the end, and I'll try to put that up on the screen for you. Uh, adenosine receptors. So I'm not going to go a lot into the physiology, but these receptors are found throughout the body. They're widespread. And when you take caffeine, it blocks adenosine. It blocks the effects of adenosine. Well, what does adenosine do? It does a lot of good things. It reduces your blood vessels. That would help to lower your blood pressure. It makes your platelets less sticky. This is this good stuff, adenosine. It keeps the stress hormones lower. These are some of the things adenosine does. So when you take caffeine and it blocks adenosine, what is it going to do? It's going to make your platelets more sticky. That's going to make your blood fluidity worse. It's going to raise your stress hormone levels, and it's going to raise your blood pressure. Now you say, well, is this all bad? 
Well, it's not very good in most situations. But you say, oh, it's good if I can't get up. I'm tired. Dr. DeRose, you don't realize I traveled here from the West Coast. And it was so hard to get up this morning, I was so glad that the hotel had coffee in the room. I don't know, do they have coffee in the room? I haven't paid much attention, do they? Most of them do. I haven't even checked. But okay, so you had that coffee. Well, by the way, if you had the coffee, uh, just because I didn't, doesn't make me one whit better than you are. You understand what I'm saying. But I do think I have a physiologic edge on you today. <laughs> because look, do I want to ramp up my stress hormones more? I mean, we're in a culture that's ramping up our stress hormones. I don't know, did you have to, any of you have to ride on a plane the last few days? <laughs> I don't know, that kind of ramps up my stress hormones. Uh, raising blood pressure, this isn't all that good either. And sticky platelets, sure, if you're bleeding, that's great. <laughs> okay, caffeine can cause all kinds of problems. Increasing anxiety, sleeplessness, other difficulties, multiple behavioral effects of caffeine, and it's related to other bad habits. This is very, very interesting to me. This is, this is a study from 1992 talking about this relationship between caffeine and other bad habits. Some of you may know that some neurophysiologists have labeled caffeine bad habit glue. Have you heard that before? In fact, I've seen it attributed to Pavlov. I, I haven't been able to establish that Pavlov was the one who said that, the great uh, scientist. But uh, maybe some of you can confirm that. What did Pavlov write in? Was he Russian? So if any of you read Russian, you can check that out and see if Pavlov really was the one who called caffeine bad habit glue. Um, I've got another list here of related compounds and a, a common problem that we see in America, and that is chronic headaches, migraine, and migraine variants. And you see on that list, uh, among the most common triggers are caffeinated beverages, alcohol, and chocolate. Well, here's that amazing study. Here's what the headlines carried. This, was, this is what the Associated Press and all the media outlets were carrying in the middle of May of last year. Want to live longer? Drink coffee. That was the headline. They were reporting on a study that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, the association of coffee drinking with total and cause-specific mortality. And the media was championing this article, saying, look at it, I'm sure glad I had my coffee this morning. A study has just come out showing, a powerful epidemiologic study showing that coffee helps you live longer. Now actually, I had not seen the New England Journal of Medicine study when I heard the news reports that were coming out, so what do you think I said? I said, I gotta get this study, I gotta get this study. So I got the study, and I started reading through it. I I'm not kidding you, here's one of the first things I read in the study. In age-adjusted models, the risk of death was increased among coffee drinkers. <laughs> really, this, this, is, this is right out of the study. So what did they do then? This is an amazing study. You saw the title. The title is, at least the media title, do you want to live longer, drink more coffee? And you start reading through the study, and they say the people in this study, it's a huge study, the people in this study who drank coffee died sooner. Now you say, well, how, 
I mean, what's going on here? How could they report something like that? Well, let me tell you what they did. Then they took, they did uh, some pretty advanced statistics and they controlled for all these factors. You see, because the coffee drinkers, and I didn't just review this study in the last day, so we'll trust this to my memory. As I recall, the coffee drinkers had more problems with their weight and they exercised less and they didn't eat as well. Uh, they didn't make as good choices in their diet and they smoked more often. So what you're seeing here is coffee drinking is associated with all these other harmful behaviors. So here's what the researchers do. They're going to say, we're going to use statistics and we're going to undo all the effect of all the other things that are related to coffee drinking. Because these are confounding, they're obscuring whether coffee is really good for us or not. Do you see there's, there's a little logical problem with this? And so what they do then is they say, if you take away all the connections between coffee with all these other bad habits, aha, coffee is good for you, and you live longer if you drink it. Now, shouldn't this be a bit suspect? Now, I haven't seen anyone try to do this with television viewing. But no, theoretically, you could do the same thing. You could say, look, a television viewing is associated with inactivity, it's associated with bad food choices, et cetera, et cetera. And then you could say, well, let's do some statistical modeling. Let's, let's look at all these confounders and see, well, is TV really good for you? And so they come out and they say, look, if you, if you take away all these associations with, with not exercising and eating the wrong foods and all, we find that the ones who watch TV are actually healthier. So you should watch more television for your health. But you say, but wait a minute, the people that are watching more television are less healthy and they're dying sooner. Do you see the problem with this? And why I'm sharing with you a study like this is the average person reads the headline and then they see the expert. I can't believe the experts that they interview. I usually don't watch these morning news shows, but sometimes when I'm traveling, I'll, I'll turn it on. One day I turned it on. This is a related topic that we'll get to in a minute. And... Uh, commenting on another big study, I think I've got one in here in a minute, that uh, showed an association between moderate drinking, moderate drinking and cancer. So and these studies keep coming out. They, they usually don't get much play in the media, but this time it was, it was on one of the morning news shows. And so they have a female cardiologist on because the connection that was being talked about in that particular study was breast cancer. And so a female cardiologist, distinguished, uh, well-qualified health professional, and the reporter says, well, what about this study? It just showed that moderate drinking, social drinking, is, is connected with breast cancer. And she says, oh, well, many, many more women are dying from heart disease than breast cancer. You know, we can detect breast cancer earlier. And alcohol is so good for your heart, we really shouldn't be worried about this at all. That was basically her message. And the point is, she was missing something, just like the press releases are missing. And this is a balanced view that inspiration helps us have. Do you see, when we distance ourselves from the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy Council on Health, we don't make ourselves a little bit wiser than our brothers and sisters. We don't become more discerning. We lose our mooring. Do you understand what's happening? This is happening in our church. As many Adventists are turning to caffeine and they think they're actually helping their health. Here's how Ellen White put it in the book Councils on Diet and Foods, page 30. There are many professed Christians today who would decide that Daniel was too particular. He was narrow and bigoted. 
Now, I hope some of you, at least in some circles, have been accused of being narrow. Now, bigoted, I don't know if that's necessarily good, but Daniel would have been accused of it, so I'm sure I've been accused of being bigoted. Usually people don't say it to my face. They consider, here's her point, they consider the matter of eating and drinking of too little consequence to require such a decided stand, one involving the probable sacrifice of every earthly advantage. Now, she pulls back the curtain and goes back to where we started. She goes to the judgment, the Day of Atonement message. Those who reason thus will find in the Day of Judgment that they turn from God's express requirements and set up their own opinion as a standard of right and wrong. Do you realize this is happening pervasively throughout the Seventh-day Adventist Church? and throughout the Christian world. And the crazy thing about it is the people doing it, they somehow think they're a little bit smarter and a little bit wiser and a little bit more on the cutting edge than the ones who are following the clear counsel that God gave us. Remember, when was that counsel given? When was the comprehensive health reform vision? 1863, 150 years ago. This is old. Listen, I just read the New England Journal, 2012, and I'm drinking coffee. I don't say that to mock anyone. I'm just saying it's sad how deluded we are and how we have forgotten. And I can't help but wonder if there isn't some relationship between our lifestyle practices and our cognition. And we'll talk at least briefly about sleep. And um, because uh, some of our great minds, so to speak, among us, aren't getting that much sleep. And sometimes, Probably all of us fall into that trap. But let's talk about this other beverage I've alluded to. What about alcohol? This is uh, one of those recent reviews, British Medical Journal, 2011, April. This is from the uh, very big uh, study called EPIC, European Perspective Investigation into Cancer and Nutrition. EPIC, here's the uh, title. Alcohol attributable burden of incidence of cancer in eight European countries based on results from prospective cohort study. Let's see what they found. Listen to some of these uh, quotes and from uh, the authors in a related press release. The cancer risk increases with what? Every drink. So even moderate amounts of alcohol, such as a small drink each day, increases the risk of these cancers. Next. Even though light to moderate alcohol consumption might decrease the risk of cardiovascular disease. This is great. This is really a very well-worded statement. I'm going to explain it to you in a minute. Even though light to moderate alcohol consumption might decrease the risk for cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular mortality, that's what they're implying there, the net effect is harmful. Alcohol consumption should not be recommended to prevent cardiovascular disease or all-cause mortality. Well, let me tell you what the researchers are saying here, and let me explain to you a little bit of background. We all know that for many years, people have been touting alcohol as a heart-healthy beverage, right? In fact, so much has that message been going out that there are even Seventh-day Adventists that are drinking alcohol for its health benefits. Are you aware of this? Yes, there are. Uh, some of you look shocked, but this uh, should be shocking, but it's become commonplace in some Adventist circles. Here's the interesting thing. 
The research is very clear. And by the way, one of the research groups that showed this is Dr. Key and his associates who work with Epic in England. In the Oxford Vegetarian Study, they showed that vegetarians, we're not speaking Seventh-day Adventists, we're speaking vegetarians in general, if they're moderate consumers of alcohol, how much heart benefit do they get? <coughs> vegetarians who are drinking alcohol, how much does it help their heart? It helps their heart zero. No heart benefit. So you see, they say here, even though moderate alcohol consumption might decrease the risk for cardiovascular disease. And the reason I'm, I'm attributing motives to why they worded it this way, but there is a one group of people that do lower their risk of cardiovascular disease by moderate alcohol consumption. Do you know what group of people that is? It's people on a bad lifestyle. People on a bad lifestyle. And presumably the relationship is this. Alcohol is filled with all kinds of wonderful things, alcoholic beverages. Some of you are you know, getting worried. You're worried enough about me, now you're getting more worried. It's filled with all kinds of wonderful things, alcoholic beverages. After all, where did the wine come from? Grapes, and who provided the grapes? Yeah, God, he loaded them with all kinds of wonderful phytochemicals. How about if you're drinking whiskey, where does that come from? Grains, okay, so it comes from grains. How about uh, vodka? They make it from potatoes, some people tell me. Uh, how about rum? I understand that comes from sugar cane. How about sake, and uh, am I pronouncing it right in Japan? That's from rice. You look at every alcoholic beverage, where does it come from? It comes from plant products. And God has loaded these plant products, by the way, with all kinds of wonderful things. I was just doing a, uh, an article come out in the uh, Journal of Health and Healing that uh, deals with memory and lifestyle. And there we were looking at some of the research on phytochemicals in memory. We were looking at the anthocyanins, anthocyanins that are found in things like apples and garlic and uh, grapes. And these things help memory. They help uh, to raise levels of a compound in the brain called brain-derived neurotrophic factor that's uh, helps improve mood and decreases your risk of stroke and all kinds of things. But this is in all these plant products. And so you may, do you think all the good things disappear when you ferment it? No. So the way I put the literature together is this. If you're on a phytochemically depleted diet and a lousy lifestyle in general, like most Americans are, it is true that if you knew that you could just keep your alcohol consumption moderate for your whole life, it might give you some benefit in lowering your risk of heart disease. And you understand I gave a caveat there. If you just knew you could keep your alcohol consumption moderate. Because you know many people, even if they've been moderate drinkers for some time, something happens in their life and the moderate drinking becomes problem drinking. You see how that works. But look at what they put here. It's not just, it's not just cardiovascular disease, look what, look what they say when they conclude. Alcohol consumption should not be recommended to prevent cardiovascular disease or all-cause mortality. Because the point is you're more likely to die if you're a moderate alcohol consumer. That's what they're saying. You're more likely to have cancer. You're more likely to die from any cause. We call it all-cause mortality in research circles. Here's how um, one of our NIH researchers went on record after the study came out. He said, from a standpoint of cancer risk, the message of this report could not be clearer. How much alcohol is safe? Zero. 
Zero. There is no level of alcohol that can be considered safe. And so the message, very clear. It's in the science, but what are we doing? Many in America, many even in the Adventist church, are selectively looking at the data, and they're saying, we're going to do just what we think we should do. To me, perhaps the most stunning testimony in the Bible about fermented beverages comes from the cross. By the way, if Jesus were to have drank that stupefying potion, would it have shortened his life? Now, we're not talking about a longevity issue here. Why did Jesus on the cross refuse to drink this fermented beverage? Ellen White is very plain. Desire of Ages, page 746. To those who suffered death by the cross, it was permitted to give a stupefying potion to deaden the sense of pain. This was offered to Jesus, but when he had tasted it, he refused. He would receive nothing that could becloud his mind. His faith must keep fast hold upon God. This was his only strength. To becloud his senses would give Satan an advantage. Now let me ask you a question. I mean, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. I mean... I mean, what kind of track record did Jesus have up to this point? He had a perfect track record. Now, if he wouldn't have a little bit of beverage that would cloud his mind, how anxious should I be to have just a little bit of alcohol? I mean, do you see how crazy this is? Do you understand why we may have a problem in the Christian world remembering what God said to remember? And I think the connection, I mean, we haven't really talked directly about the Sabbath, but can you understand that there are people that may not even be able to understand or comprehend what God is calling them to do because their mind is so clouded? You know that that's part of the counsel we have. One of the reasons the health message is so fundamental to our Christian witness is because many of the people that you love and care about cannot even hear you. They cannot understand what you're saying because of their lousy lifestyle. And so when you do a health program in your church, and you say, I was a failure. I mean, no one's attending the church afterward. You know, no one's coming. By the way, just as an aside, I mentioned to you earlier about the New Start program at Weimar and the health program that we're running there. And we have people attending church right in our area who've come through those programs. We uh, last year had a Bible study group, a number of our New Start alumni who were in Seventh-day Adventists attending those meetings. We have people who came through the work that our health students have been doing, attending church on a regular basis. And what was the connection? It was the health message, you see? But they weren't baptized after three weeks. Do you understand? It's a commitment. And the commitment starts actually with our own lifestyle. Why do I have this here? That's not going to help you. Let's talk a little bit about rest since I, since I mentioned that, just at least briefly. And then I do want to give you at least uh, a few minutes if the people recording it will let me do it. Can we actually have a few questions and answers? Are you guys okay with that? Can we, like, take a mic and move it around? Someone's looking kind of worried, like we may need technical help and it's not here. <laughs> well, we'll see. We might have to keep the questions very short. But uh, rest, I just want to touch on this because we've only got about 10 minutes left in this session. I know we started a little late, so we'll maybe run five minutes later than scheduled. But rest. If we're not getting enough rest, we are affecting our cognitive performance. We're increasing our risk of accidents and injuries, 
it does impair learning and memory formation. You, all, you are all aware, aren't you, that you need adequate sleep to consolidate memories? So you can have immediate recall, but if you want to retain things, you have to get adequate sleep. Now, I know this for a fact because before I was a Seventh-day Adventist, I was very intemperate. And uh, I would stay up for many hours. I was one of those students that would cram for my finals and wouldn't sleep. Uh, and uh, I could do great on the final exam. And then some student would walk up to me a week or two later, wasn't that a great class? I mean, you remember that? And it was like I never even took the class. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I just didn't retain things. So uh, it's a crazy world in which we live, that we prioritize not learning, but performance on some artificial uh, benchmark. Degradation in mood. Increased likelihood of resistant high blood pressure. By the way, diabetes too related because stress hormones rise when we're not sleeping enough. That's how you keep going. The body ramps up the stress hormone levels. That's why it affects your mood, tends to raise your blood sugar, tends to raise your blood pressure. Your immune system drops, killer cell activity drops, but at the same time, inflammation increases in the body. So if you have arthritis, many of my arthritic patients tell me they know when they're not getting enough sleep because their joints bother them much more. Some of you may have observed that. So inflammation is worse. And they've, they've shown, they've recorded, they've looked at people. One study, they took people getting eight hours of sleep and they cut their sleep back to four hours a night. In this scientific study, I'm sure they paid them well. And they measured two key inflammatory markers, interleukin-6 and tumor necrosis factor alpha. These are uh, some of the compounds, if you're not familiar with these, these big words. These are some of the compounds that the most powerful drugs today for autoimmune diseases target. So if you have an autoimmune disease, they're going to give you a drug that may block tumor necrosis factor or the interleukins. And so these people are taking these drugs, and these drugs cost a lot of money. I mean, lots and lots of money. So I can imagine some people say, well, I've got to take a second or a third job so I can afford this drug to lower my interleukins and my tumor necrosis factor. And what happens when they're working the two or three jobs? They're getting so little sleep that they're ramping up those very same factors that they're taking the drug to drop. Now, that's a little bit of uh, drama there in the description. But the point is simply this. Lack of sleep raises inflammation, and it increases mortality. Let's look at one other statement from the Spirit of Prophecy, then if you have some, some feedback or some questions. Since the mind and the soul find expression through the body, both mental and spiritual vigor are in great degree dependent upon physical strength and activity. Whatever promotes physical health promotes the development of a strong mind and a well-balanced character. Without health, no one can as distinctly understand or as completely fulfill his obligations to himself, to his fellow beings, or to his creator. Do you see why we titled this presentation the way we did? Do you see that this has everything to do with our witness, our Christian witness? Do you see it has everything to do with our walk with Christ? And it's talking about what? Promoting our physical health, promoting our mental health. Therefore, the health should be as faithfully guarded as the character. A knowledge of physiology and hygiene should be the basis of all educational effort. Okay, does this, is this mic on? We want to give you a chance to ask a few questions. 
Uh, we're going to let you go at 5 after 12. And uh, my clock says that means we have about 10 minutes. Some of you have to leave, and that's fine. But um, this is not working. If you have a brief question that you can ask loudly, I'll try to answer it. That was the first hand I saw. Okay, links between obesity and mental health. Interestingly, uh, there's a lot on this topic. I was just looking at a report out of Mount Sinai uh, Medical School in Manhattan, and they have a uh, dementia research group there. And what these uh, researchers uh, were saying is, we're looking at this epidemic of dementia in America. And they said, you know, the issue isn't just can we stop dementia in its tracks, if we could just delay dementia, that might be sufficient because most of us struggle with dementia in the later years of our life. And they were saying if we could just delay the onset of dementia by even five years, we would cut its incidence in half. And in their, their work, they were saying dementia has a lot to do with diet and obesity and metabolism. And they, they aren't unique in this. And uh, what they were, per particularly a, a figure they gave, was that if you're obese and have diabetes, your risk of dementia, of Alzheimer's disease specifically, is increased fourfold. And uh, so there's this real clear connection between metabolic factors and lifestyle factors and even dementia. And uh, we could talk about it for other causes of dementia, uh, circulatory dementias, multiple infarct dementia, and its relationship to, to quote, mini strokes, and how that has to do with blood fluidity and lifestyle and blood pressure. But all these things tie together. But the whole point is it's not just issues at the end of life. Ellen White makes it very clear these are issues that are germane even to children because our lifestyle affects our mental clarity right now, right today. Okay, was your hand up here? Mm -hmm. Why can't you have chocolate? It's an excellent question, and I never tell anyone they can't have chocolate. Okay, next question. Um, <laughs> let, me, let, me, uh, let me just pause there a little bit. Since that, okay, okay. Here, here's the thing. Oh, he asked, why can I not have chocolate? Why, and I said, I never tell anyone they can't have chocolate. My, my job and all our jobs is not to tell people what they can and can't do. Our job is a job of education. We're to share with people the, the information that's out there. Let me make it very simple. I've, there are some good things in chocolate. It's a good source of magnesium, for example. Um, by the way, there's good things in tobacco, too. Are you aware of that? No, there are. Yeah, the people that, uh, that smoke have lower risks of uh, ulcerative colitis. Which is, a, which is a bad inflammatory bowel disease, but unfortunately, an uh, even more widespread inflammatory bowel disease that affects more of the bowel is Crohn's disease, and that's increased with smoking. So we don't recommend smoking for digestive health. That worsens a lot of other things like ulcers. But here's my point. You can look at things, and you can find something good. There are phytochemicals in chocolate. But as I pointed out to many of my patients in my 25 plus years of medical practice, I have never yet once had a patient in my office who I thought was there because they were not eating enough chocolate, okay? Really, this chocolate is, is not a health food. I mean, we, it doesn't have, I have never seen a reason to prescribe chocolate. If you have one piece of chocolate a year and the Holy Spirit is telling you that's fine, I'm not gonna try to take it away from you. Uh, but here's what I recommend. Find the things with the phytochemicals, the whole foods that don't have the methylxanthines, this caffeine-related family of compounds, that don't usually come with a bunch of dairy and sugar, and I think those are actually better choices. Okay, question over here. 
Okay, so uh, she, this sister read an article that said fermented foods were better for us than raw foods. And uh, well, it's, it's kind of the same story. There are things that are created in fermentation, things that are broken down, the th uh, things that people may have been worried about in the past or maybe worried about today. But there's a very interesting relationship. In the spirit of prophecy, everything that is the product of disease or decay or fermentation is condemned. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. So she tells us we shouldn't eat decaying fruits and vegetables. And I noticed that many of you throw those away, which is good. But do you know there's other things that are the product of disease and decay? By the way, alcoholic beverages are the product of disease and decay. But to bring this even closer to home, one of America's favorite foods, one of my former favorite foods, is a product of disease and decay. Growing up as a child, having three grandparents born in Italy, what do you think one of our favorite foods was? That's right, it was cheese. Cheese is actually a microbiological nightmare. It really is. It is the product of disease and decay, molds and bacteria working on milk protein. And if you actually did the studied the chemistry, as I did some years ago, you would, be, you would be shocked. It's also a huge source of sodium in the diet. It's a major source of saturated fat. It is problem, problem, problem. In fact, so much so that Ellen White, when she wrote about it in Ministry of Healing, said it is wholly unfit for food. And so I am shocked by how much cheese we use as Seventh-day Adventists. Now remember, I'm telling you this as someone who used to eat lots of cheese. I grew up in Chicago. Just north of me where I grew up is the dairy state of Wisconsin. In my era, I thought, honestly, I thought when I was eating ice cream and eating cheese, I was eating health food. I'm just telling you the truth. And so what happened, though, is I looked at the data. I saw that what God had convicted me about before I looked at the data and that is that I should get rid of the cheese, was wise counsel. And I would suggest that you do that. And it's the same with the fermented foods. These are not what they're being promised to be. Let me give you one last illustration. One of the things that has been, and I'm not sure that fermentation breaks this down, it may, phytic acid. It's a compound that can interfere with the absorption of nutrients. And uh, at first, people were saying, well, this is bad. You shouldn't eat too many plant foods because they're a rich source of phytic acid. It may interfere with your mineral metabolism. There was no evidence of that. And now we know phytic acid is a powerful anti-cancer compound. And now people think it's very good. OK, I think we have time for one last question. Who's had their hand up the longest? How would you know? You're sitting up front. <laughs> okay, he's insisting he, he was first. Is it a sin to be sick? Is it a sin to be sick? I'll let you read the, pro the spirit of prophecy and study that and then try to. Uh, let me tell you it this way all, sin, all sickness is the result of sin. There's no question about it. In the Garden of Eden, there was no sin. But it doesn't mean it is your individual sin that causes sickness. So even though you may read that language, uh, I'm not sure that the point is that you individually are supposed to feel that it's your responsibility. If you're hit by a car and have permanent disability, and that disability predisposes you to urinary tract infections and respiratory infections, I don't think that was your sin that you got in the car at that particular time. You could have said, well, I should have spent five more minutes in devotions, and I wouldn't have been on the road at that time. I think that's, uh, that's totally uh, self-defeating. So I know it's a, a, it deserves a, a more uh, comprehensive answer than that, but uh, in view of our one minute left, and this brother here who was insistent that he had his hand up before you, <laughs> speak, speak up for us, please, and we'll try to answer your question. Okay, well, we just came out with a whole, ser whole three-hour series on reversing hypertension naturally. 
Uh, Amazing Facts carries it, and that will go into a lot of detail for you. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, and I do want to close with a word of prayer. Let's pray together, and then I'll make a couple of announcements about some resources that we have for you before we leave. Oh, give you my email address first. Okay, we'll, we'll do that for you. Okay, let me tell you about the resources. Uh, Rebecca, is she still here? She put her flyers on the back table for Amen. Don McIntosh is now here. I mentioned the health program, the training program that we have. And uh, Don, is, Don, why don't you stand up? If you, can't, if you don't know who Don is, he's wearing a shirt that says health, uh, a nice black T-shirt. And uh, here's my email address. I will give that to you. If you want a copy of uh, the slides that I had up there, it's just D. D. Rose. This is for the recording, too, because they can't see it on the audio. D. D. Rose at Weimar.edu. Okay? So let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. And then if you want to get those resources, see Don or get them on the table if you're interested in the Amen Luncheon. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, We thank you for the privilege you've given us of studying together. Our minds have been drawn to how modern science is actually corroborating the messages that you've given us in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. You've called us to a special understanding of the times in which which we're living. It's in the context of an investigative judgment. And that judgment can sometimes seem like a very somber message, but you've reminded us today that you want our focus in the judgment is that we can come to Jesus just as we are, that we're complete in him. But that should not cause us to be complacent, but should cause us to be more diligent, to allow him to work that character in us that will give us a closer relationship with him and help us more effectively represent his character to the world. To that end, we ask for your blessing on each one of us and this entire meeting at ASI. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.